Typically, this is where the parental advisory warning for BuzzFeed's podcast Internet Explorer would go. But today, we're going to be doing something very classy and not swearing, probably. I can also guarantee that anyone under the age of 18 will <laughs> yeah. be way too bored by this particular yeah. episode because we're just going to talk about content. If you're <laughs> under 18, go smoke cigarettes or something. Get out of here. Yeah. Welcome to BuzzFeed's Internet Explorer, a podcast about the internet. My name is Katie Natopoulos. I'm Ryan Broderick. And today we have a very special episode of Internet Explorer. We have two guests today at the same time. It's amazing. We have John Herman. Hello, John. How are you? Hello. John is the editor of The All. And we also have uh, CEO of BuzzFeed, Jonah Peretti. Uh, and we're going to be doing a totally not journalistically sketchy <laughs> conversation between a friend of ours and our boss about the changing <laughs> landscape of digital media. Yeah, also a friend who also used to work at BuzzFeed. So this is all totally kosher, all above board. Nothing weird here at all. Welcome, guys. How are you? Uh, pretty good. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. I'm I'm happy that we can be here to to announce our merger together. Um, John, that's such exciting news. Can you say that again for everyone? <laughs> so, guys, uh, the internet, huh? Um, you guys are both professionals uh, who work on the internet. Um, and so we have some questions for you. You want to measure our level of professionalism. We want to measure your level of professionalism as internet professionals. So the first thing we want to ask you is fuck, Mary kill. Okay, yeah, here we go. So this is your first uh, internet-themed fuck, Mary kill. Fuck, Mary kill, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I don't think I can really play this game, to be honest. Really? <laughs> yeah. It's more like for, for like, you know, youngsters to play. <laughs> <laughs> I mostly get people emailing, complaining that there's fuck, Mary kill content on BuzzFeed. Really? Like, people complain? I did not know like, So you're like, saying kill email. No, like, oh. like <laughs> usually, usually like 60-year-old white dudes. I heard so, that there's like going to be like a TV version that's like, Kiss, marry, or leave, or, or no, something. Avoid. Like they had to make avoid. it like the clean it's version. It's very, it's very edgy for for a certain generation. Mm, okay. Uh, well, maybe we can for you. You can do kiss, marry, or leave. <laughs> <laughs> I personally still want to know which uh, John wants to fuck. Oh, Definitely. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Instagram, marry Twitter, and then kill myself. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. In that order, or would you kill yourself first? No, I mean, I'll. Work within the confines <laughs> of my my mortality and weight. <laughs> We're not going to answer any of your questions. <laughs> fair enough. Fair this enough. Is, this is the this is such a good interview. I love this whole thing. I'm so feeling so good, guys. I feel like we're really bonding. This is great. <laughs> Couldn't do it without you, Ryan. <laughs> All right, guys. That was a complete failure, and I have, <laughs> know nothing more about <laughs> oh. who you would like to fuck, marry, or kill. But, you know, being that you're internet professionals, most of those things are probably, you know, unattainable anyways. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, what I want to know from you guys is, uh, what's the future of the internet? Uh, Jonah, what is the future of the internet? I mean, I think 
the most important thing is winning the argument. It doesn't matter whether you're <laughs> right or not. So that's that's what I'm here to focus on. So in thinking about the future of the internet, we have to think about the past, right? What were you guys into in the year 2000 on the internet? John, what were you into? In the year 2000, I would have been about 13 okay. years old. <laughs> 13-year-old boys so. are into great stuff on the internet right now. I can tell you. That. I can vouch for that. So... The things that I was officially into on the internet are would be like posting product reviews on mountain bike forums and like uh, I briefly started a music website that was it was dedicated to like heavy metal and punk and hardcore or what I whatever I thought those things were when I was thirteen. Um, I started that with someone I met on a forum. That was my life. What about you, Jenna? So in two thousand, I was a teacher at a school in New Orleans teaching 13-year-olds how to make websites on GeoCities. Okay. What's something you miss about that time that doesn't exist now on the internet? Well, I I mean, the newness and the excitement of how new everything was. Yeah. And, you know, I was, I was at a school that was kindergarten through 12th grade, and I taught everything from some kindergarten to 6th grade to 10th graders to 12th graders. And because computers were new, my curriculum could be anything so long as it involved technology. So I had students who I would like with my sixth grade class, we would use the Microsoft Word wizard to create social protest letters. And you know, some <laughs> of them would be like to the mayor or something serious, but others would be like, dear the limited two, your prices are too high and my mom won't <laughs> let me buy you know pants there or whatever. And it wasn't so much about the internet as it was as computers. Yeah. And, and the way I got the job, which was in like 1998 or something, is I made an animated GIF of an alligator, which was the school mascot. And so in my <laughs> test lesson where I came in, I taught this class and showed them how to make an animated GIF. And the, and the alligator like opened its mouth and thrashed its tail. And everyone was like, whoa, <laughs> you're hired. <laughs> um, you know, once a GIF peddler, always a GIF peddler. Yeah. That's <laughs> exactly how I got a job at BuzzFeed. I, I just showed them my GIF folder and they're like well, you you gotta come in yeah what about you john is there like something either in general or particular that you miss i kind of miss how you could never tell what was real so like you, you were never sure if you were in the middle of some big argument or if you would like become part of some community how much of it was just like a fantasy for people so you wouldn't like you you would end up in these situations where everything felt like the most important thing in the world. I mean, maybe I was 13 at the time, so maybe this is just about being a teenager. <laughs> but but at the same time, you're like, well, also, I don't know who any of these people are, and like this does not connect to the real world in, in any way other than my mood at this moment. I mean, this is something that bothers me. Like, Can you imagine like what it's like to to be a like a meme enthusiast now at age like 13, 14? There's like, like a meme renaissance right now. But there, I feel like it would make you either insanely powerful yeah. or just completely nuts. Well, also, also the the time that it takes for something to spread has gotten so short. And I sort of observed this through through the things that I made back in those days, or a little bit after, like 2001. <laughs> I made I made an early email forward, then this Nike sweatshop email forward, and that took like six months to spread, like because you could track it as it spread, mm -hmm. and then. And then after that, rejection line took like three months to spread. And then after that, Black People Love Us took one month to spread. And they were all, it was 2001, 2002, 2003. And so just in the course of three years, the time it took for something that was viral or something that was spreading to reach a saturation and then decline got shorter and shorter and shorter. And you'd reach more people in, the, in, in a shorter amount of time, but it would, things would die faster. And now you see these things that are like, 
you know, on Twitter, there are like things shooting up and then falling down like two hours later. So the time has gotten so much more compressed. So I don't know how that would affect a 13 year old who's trying to think about these things. Just to like establish the the age and authority gap more completely. Um, I was someone who used the rejection line yeah. <laughs> as, as a joke. John, I mean, can you explain what the rejection line was? The joke was that it's a, it's a number you give to someone who asked for your number, but who you don't want to give your number to. And and an, it's an automated rejection service. I'm sick of talking about the past. No more memes at the dinner table. I don't want to talk about memes anymore. Um, <laughs> and this question is first to John, just because it's something that you write about a lot on the all. In 15 years, in five years, in 10 years, maybe next year, I don't know. In the future of the internet, do you think that websites will be some legacy format like records or newspapers or cave drawings or, I don't know, like, uh, what do you think? Yeah, kind of. It's hard to compare them to something like that because, you know, the internet changes everything it touches and it will change the way that something becomes antiquated. And there, there are examples like of, of types of websites that people don't really publish or, or make anymore that are just floating out there and... I think maybe the like front page article style of website, the type that a lot of news sites or blogs publish, will fairly quickly and probably more quickly than it even seems now feel really out of date. But this idea of the site as, as a destination being kind of like out, outmoded is something that I that I buy into, and obviously something that Jonah talks about a lot in a different way. But uh, well, how is it different? Well, I mean, you. Uh, see maybe a movement toward platforms and this idea of meeting people where they already are and you describe that and see like opportunity and 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 i see it and i'm like well i think websites are kind of as we understand them like i I do buy this thesis that that's not how people are going to consume a lot of different things that they used to consume there do you wish that they were to stay a destination or are you nostalgic for the websites that you feel are becoming less important yeah certainly um that's definitely the first response when you realize something like that is to be nostalgic for the the things that you liked or grew up with or continue to work on Um, (laughs) and and to become frightened for your future prospects as a blog content producer but i mean that doesn't really stand up to much scrutiny you can't be too nostalgic for a form if this stuff comes to pass you'll hear a lot of rhetoric from people who run websites that will sound kind of familiar to people who watched print deal with the rise of the web and the rise of websites themselves. But, you know, it like the container that you, you know, consume your media from matters a lot. It like helps shape how that media looks, what it references, what it's interested in. Websites had effects like that. Newspapers had effects like that. Television in all its various different forms as a medium had a profound effect on the, on television the media and i think you know platforms are clearly open to analysis like that and so that's what i'd like to do is is to wonder like what on earth it'll mean if the conversations that we were having through websites or the media we we're consuming through websites becomes something that is now like a uh, part of a platform like facebook or a platform like twitter or Apple just just announced Apple News, mm-hmm. right? BuzzFeed's a partner. Is, is the all going to you know wish your stuff on we, on these kind of platforms? We tried to sign up and it asked for an Apple ID, and so 
we Wait, tried, really? Yeah, and we tried to, <laughs> yeah, and we, so we, we were going to make a new Apple idea for the site, but then it was like, what's your favorite car? And then we had all these really difficult discussions about, <laughs> or, sorry, what, what was your, what was your first car? So we had all these difficult discussions about what the all's first car was. <laughs> we just sort of, we sort of stopped there. I mean, that's really funny that like the smallest technical hiccup of like having to pick the security questions for an Apple ID is like what makes it so you can't like join this larger thing. But like, I mean, in a weird way, like there are still these technical friction points to doing anything like this that is intended to make a more frictionless experience for the consumer in the end. Like, There's a lot of uncertainty about where all this is headed. Mm-hmm. And I think John's writing on this has been like very influential. I mm-hmm. think a lot of people in Silicon Valley are reading it. And, uh, and, and there's a lot of smart analysis in it. And it's, it's, um, it's in an area that a lot of people are thinking about, both on the tech, at the big tech platforms and also publishers. Um, the friction point question is, it's not clear to me, like, if, if you said, well, now we don't have engineers and now we don't have to build a website and now we have a smaller team that essentially connects us to all these various platforms where we publish natively and we're focused more on the content. And, mm-hmm. you know, it could be it could be that this isn't actually harder for the little guy. It could be that it's easier for the little guy and it's actually the BuzzFeeds of the world that have built this you know, impressive technology stack where now it has a little less, uh, you know, that might that stack might have a little less value because you're publishing to all these different places. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it actually makes data science really important and being able to publish across multiple platforms and being able to learn on one platform and earn on another platform and and being sophisticated about 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 syndicating content to all these different places. Like maybe that makes what we do more valuable and 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 the technology and expertise and scale is a huge advantage. Mm-hmm. But it's not it's not clear which it is to me. I think a trick that I sort of use sometimes to like, you know, get traction with these stories is I, I'll write from the voice of like the mem- a member of the content industry. So that's so I'll sort of have this like fatalistic tone and, and uh, talk to people directly as if we're sort of at a bar talking about like what on earth our publishers are going to do and like all this stuff that we've heard about, you know way you know way out west what facebook is planning and stuff like that are you are you drunk and, too like <laughs> yeah first draft drunk um second draft high that's such a cool peek into your <laughs> process i want to jump back real quick to something that jonah mentioned because i think it's really interesting and also nicely ties together with like what we were talking about a second ago about 2000s web culture you mentioned how like without a full stack someone could just jump on facebook and make uh, a media company just kind of out of nothing this distributed idea of like I have a Twitter and Instagram and I, I remember when I was a teenager I had a band page on MySpace and many many hours were spent trying to make us look different than everyone else who were being hosted on the same social platform and it was like this very crude thing that I'm reminded of whenever I go on Facebook now and I just see like a million versions of the sameness that seems to be bred in like the first wave of social publishing whenever there's a new one. Like I remember like all the parody accounts that popped up last year on Twitter because they all realized we can now do this and that. And I wanted to get your thoughts about wh- where does this go? How do we, how does that work, I guess? Well, we've definitely learned that John's dirty attention-grabbing trick is to write a 2,000-word essay about the future <laughs> of media. <laughs> the way I think about it is the open web will matter and having your owned and operated platforms will matter, your own apps, your own site, um, and partly because you learn certain things from doing that. And then um, being on distributed platforms that give you data back will also be important. So if you can, if you can see, you know, and, and sometimes you get data that you don't even get on your own platforms, like we'll notice that people are sharing Facebook videos with their significant other. 
and tagging them. Um, and then there will also be places where you don't get much data at all and you're kind of in the dark and you and you know, and that's traditional t television and broadcast and things like that. And I think that what media companies, or at least what bigger media companies will need to do to uh, thrive in the future is be in a lot of those different places and l learn some places and earn in other places. For us, you still need to have places where you can play and experiment. And even if you don't make much money there, that's okay because it can lead to other other things. So just one kind of example of that. We do a lot of identity-based content, like lists and quizzes and things like that. Um, one post w got you know blew, blew up that was um, something about like challenge short girl problems, like you know a, a classic BuzzFeed list post. The video team a few days later sees that and says, "Oh wow, this was this this did well. Let's make a video version of this." Then that video version also does well. Then the animation team in our our LA studio, you know, see, sees it and says, "Oh, short. Let's make Short Girl capital S capital G into a character called Short Girl." And it's now we have right. an animated series called Short Girl, and that animated series could expand to you know television or could expand to to other platforms. And so having this ability to be connected with an audience and responsive to an audience, and and then having lots of creative people trying ideas and experimenting with things, and then being able to learn should should allow you to to make TV more internet-like and make the internet still be a, a, an open place where you can learn from lots of data and lots of people you know, playing and experimenting. Well, when you talk about this, this idea of sameness that you see a lot of companies kind of producing very similar stuff because that's what they you know, notice works, that is reacting to like extremely basic data they've received back from the platform, which is that this gets more shares or more likes than something else we were doing. And what's interesting to me in a case that's simple like that is to try to sort out which parts of that data are relevant to the thing that you're making and which parts of those are expressions of the nature of the platform. So if you're talking about identity content, the data that Facebook is going to return to you on that is probably going to be disproportionately good, which isn't necessarily bad, but it's something that is very much about Facebook the platform, which is to say that people are on Facebook sharing articles as an expression of their identity. Uh, the things that you put into newsfeed are expressions to a unintentionally selected group of friends of who you are and what you believe or what you want them to think you believe. It's like a, it's a very complex performed identity. And so this data you get back, it's hard to just think of it as, you know, capital D data. Like we have this information to sort through now and, and to piece together. It's provided by Facebook. It is a reflection of what is valuable to Facebook as well as to you as a Facebook partner. It, it's points like that where the relationship between some uh, a publisher or a user and the platform become really interesting. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and it's also why when we see something that does really well on one platform and not on other platforms, we, we think that maybe the platform's broken. Remember the 50, which states should you actually live in right. quiz? And it was something like 40 million views and it was almost all Facebook. And the reason I think that it did so well was that Facebook had just um, made a change that valued comments much more highly than likes and shares. And because there was there's 50 states, um, there were lots of ties. And the way that the quiz was calculated was reverse um, reverse alphabetical. Mm -hmm. So we told we told three million people that they should live in Wyoming. And only eight hundred thousand people actually live in Wyoming. <laughs> right. So, um, so all the comments were people saying, "saying what the fuck?" Like I got Wyoming, and then Facebook said, "Wow, people are engaging a lot and talking, you know, commenting a lot on this." Uh -huh. And and the fact that it was broke, that the quiz was a little bit broken in terms of the way it generated results, actually meant it got more distribution. 
the algorithm might not be a perfect reflection of what people on Facebook want. And you have to assume that people who work at Facebook know that and are going to try to continually improve it. And so you have to kind of optimize for what you think six months from now they're going to do if they do a good job. You know, you hear people talk about how we're in the golden age of television and there's all these amazing shows and people are, you know, investing in so much. And that's because of the cable bundle. Right. And the cable bundle is 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 distressed and going away and so people fear that there won't be such good tv in five years because people won't pay up just because mad men they won't pay big affiliate fees just because they have mad men and they'll people will watch it other ways and and then when you have the internet conversation it's like there's creating these new content bundles that might be really lucrative but it's going to be the end of the golden age of the internet and in the and the open internet and it's like almost the opposite it's almost like the opposite argument which is that you know, in one case, unbundling is going to make everything suck. And in the other case, like bun- new these new bundles that these tech platforms are powering are going to ruin everything. Right. To tie those things together, TV was broken and weird and made a lot of good shows, but had severe limitations in terms of who had access to it, uh, who could make television, how it was distributed, what it costs. So there are all these particulars about the TV industry that really it would take an enormous amount of like in-depth research and 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 even experience to like to even nail down like why does the tv industry work that way and i feel like we're watching that happen again we're going to make something new that in a lot of ways is is probably better it's bigger it's it's more accessible to more people it's it's more interactive but it is centralizing in some very visible ways and that will make these new particular traits and i'm interested in figuring out what those are if for a time and it's a mistake to assume that these things are going to last very long because the most fun thing about the internet is how it feels like it's accelerating all the time like you're like you're accelerating towards some sort of like explosion or something um (laughs) and that that extends like to the very biggest industries so Mm -hmm. i have to imagine like if you're if you're in a management position at a huge internet platform now you are optimistic about your prospects because you have a lot of resources and a lot of insights and probably a lot of plans but you're also thinking like man we like three years ago we didn't really matter and now we are incredibly important in all these different ways and like someone's going to do that to us and it's probably going to be faster this time yeah i mean i think the 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 people running big tech companies are all paranoid and actually celebrate paranoia as a as a virtue if you're in the middle of this of content production i guess you are probably and rightly anxious about like where exactly you stand and like what your job is and who you're working for you if you work for a publisher you could sort of real you could sort of say that you're also working for the companies that that publisher depends on and your job is very much shaped by these things and so you know one year you might be focusing on on a version of your job that is extremely appropriate for one platform but then maybe that platform is overtaken by another one or integrated into another one or changes the way that it works in some uh you know, subtle way that has a huge effect on the particular thing that you do. That's something that I hear from people a lot that it causes just immense anxiety (laughs) Um, and like all quarters of content production, whether it's video uh, or podcasts or, you know, or or even the cable cable operators and the cable networks who are where they're always freaking out. Will they get carriage on the dish network? Yeah, absolutely. And those are those are huge. I mean, those those stories you read every year, it's the same thing. It's like, is DirecTV going to reach a deal with this uh, with ESPN in time or whatever so that people here can watch the game? And like, that's such a strange thing that we take for granted because we're used to it. 
I don't see how we won't have a lot of strange things like that in the future. And it, I think what you're trying to say, if I can stop you real quick, is that we should all probably be writing and making content for Chinese microblogging websites. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that's probably the safest bet for the future is that we should all get Weibo accounts. I and- think that, that that's the promise of the internet that you're there that you have some anxiety about. You know, years ago I sold with my sister at Chelsea Peretti a bunch of television shows. Did any of them air? We, we sold them, and not uh-huh. a single one aired. And it, they didn't air because executives would move from one network to another, and then the person who bought it would like say, well, like the new team coming in doesn't want mm-hmm. some other person's shows. It was frustrating because we had ideas, and people liked the ideas. We could sell the ideas, and we had to negotiate with our lawyers all the way from paper development to the back end of the DVD sales. Uh-huh. You know, And so there's all this legal upfront, and then like the thing doesn't get made. And so then Chelsea went to do stand up and I went to the internet. Right. And like on the internet, I could just make, you know, pro- do projects and release them and immediately see. And I could put something out even if it was terrible. And then I could get better and I could learn and I could do other stuff. And in stand up, you constantly are in front of an audience and you tell jokes and you realize sometimes you don't communicate as well as you'd like the humor in your joke and you, you hone your jokes and get better. And it like allows you to improve your, your craft. And I think that that spirit is really important. And if we get go to a world where, convincing a media executive to put you on the air is the way that you have what you have to go through to, mm-hmm. to do something creative that would be terrible and when you look at the buzzfeed motion picture studio in la like zay is essentially taking people who otherwise would have been going to auditions working as a waiter you know doing unfulfilling work if they ever did get a job and instead they come to buzzfeed and they just start making stuff and because platforms like youtube and facebook video and other things are f- are fairly open they can make stuff and learn from it and get better. And, and they spend 80%, 90% of the time making things and not asking mm-hmm. for permission to make things. And so the question is, you know, are there places where the permission, you know, to make things and to be seen is going to be sort of taken away? And and how does that process work? Well, yeah, it, it, the thing that I think I, I come back to again and again is that it does feel like with the, as platforms mature that the the walls start to come up a little bit. And it's it's subtle at first, so sometimes it seems like like an overreaction but when you start seeing the contours of a new institution that has barriers and that has those executives who are making decisions and like you know uh, something as as benign as uh, seeing who apple's launch partners are for the news app like i don't really think that news app is gonna do great they don't have a great track record with those types of apps but they put up a bunch of names on stage and said like here we are then they open it up to everyone the facebook instant publishers uh it's not like there was an application process. It's not like they said, put your name in and we'll select you. It was even more uh, deliberate than that. It was just like, we, you know, we're going to approach some companies that we'd like to have on Facebook and use as, use them as examples. And still Facebook is open. Anyone can publish there and promote their content there. Uh, but the the requirements are then, then just inch a little bit higher. You have to become a little bit more amenable to what they do. You, uh, if you, If you want your page to perform well, you need to probably develop a video strategy you need to be receptive to more things that facebook would like and that might be good for you but that might not we have some platforms that are attempting to recreate some things that weren't good about the things they replaced right and so the question is where are there spaces where people can play and and do things without permission and are those places disappearing is it is it just that that as platforms mature they favor content that's moving up market that's more that costs more to produce that requires bigger companies to make it you know you know like disney when disney started they were doing 
short cartoons mm-hmm. and they weren't doing features and the cartoons would show before and you know before mm-hmm. feature films and and then slowly they they you know moved up market and now they make these giant feature films that nobody can make unless they have the billions of dollars that Disney has and so um is that just a natural progression and then you know things move to you know what magazines get big and fancy and then zines emerge or uh, you know, like, are, there, are are we going to run out of spaces for people to be able to to experiment and do stuff, do whatever they want and, and play? We, we've talked a lot about optimism about the Internet versus pessimism about the Internet. As someone who is around John's age, I read your column. I really like it. As someone who is happily employed by Jonah, um, I would like to try to bridge. Um, I would like to try to bridge this and and see what you think about this, which is that when I read your column, John, the pessimism or the 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 inherent kind of sadness sometimes uh, I really sympathize with because when I grew up with like dial up and just fucking around uh, with weird websites and stealing content uh, <laughs> and casa and all this stuff, I kind of thought I was being promised a different outcome. I didn't think that if I became an inter- internet professional <laughs> as an adult, I didn't think I'd have to worry about the walls of things like TV come down on me. I thought I was being promised something else. And I wonder if that if that's what you're touching on when you kind of talk about the vulnerability. Is is that kind of what you're addressing or is it something else entirely and I just totally screwed it up? <laughs> no, there's, I'm probably coming from a similar place and, and should check that more often because I'm sure it can <laughs> cloud, cloud my thinking about things. Um, but I feel confident that having skepticism at the rise of incredibly huge platforms that play home to just inconceivable amounts of conversation and communication and media consumption it seems it seems like a reasonable starting position yeah i also would say you know ryan you did that that piece about the autistic boy who in was it Florida who's who's had a birthday right. party and none of the other kids showed up to his party and then he posted on Facebook and the fire firemen and policemen came and the town kind of rallied and threw a uh, a party and that was a story that you wrote you you filed in in our London office and then it was a big story on Facebook in the US and then and then was translated into Portuguese and published on our Portuguese yeah. site mm-hmm. and became a huge story in Brazil and right. it was, uh, you know, a pretty, co- a pretty cool internet story. And in terms of being an internet professional, maybe that is the kind of thing you'd imagine you'd be able to do, where some kind of story spreads around the world like that and is kind of open. However, oh, totally, yeah, yeah. However, that was possible in part because BuzzFeed has invested a lot in building big, right, a big, uh, you know, a tech platform and a CMS and have and a team in Brazil where we are, you know, have have a bunch of editors there and a team in London and 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 right. all of you know and so there's a sort of question of could you have done that if you were just some kid on the street and i think that's that that maybe is part you know it's partly that if that happens sort of out in the wild it gets it get, it ends up inside of something like buzzfeed and and buzzfeed becomes the propellant that accelerates it to different places around the world well i don't, I don't want people to to think i'm saying that platforms are inherently bad like they all must offer their users something new in order for people to start to use them. They give you more access to more people. They give you a novel or interesting way to communicate. They give you some sort of experience that you crave and, and come back to. What the, the the thing that's less conscious about this is that when you then give that communication or, or that time to these platforms, you 
together with millions of other people give them huge amounts of power that that they didn't necessarily ask or plan for. And so they end up in positions of power over parts of all kinds of things. Part, I mean, obviously, uh, a platform such as Apple's can just come through and, and utterly change dozens and dozens of industries. But a platform where people have conversation can change politics and and it can change the way that people talk about culture. And the fact that that is that's kind of an unintended outcome or that the way it happened isn't the way that anyone really planned for is at once totally exhilarating and like makes the future of the internet not seem so bad. And it's also kind of terrifying that it's just like, <laughs> it just happened. <laughs> um, for the record, everyone, John does not approve of people attending an autistic four-year-old's birthday party. Um, I, I do have one last question for each of you. Uh, Jonah, what is something about what's happening with these platforms, the internet, the way things are going, looking in the next five years that you're very pessimistic about? Pessimistic. Ooh, good question, Katie. <laughs> Ryan, Ryan's job. You're going to ask John. You're going <laughs> to yeah. ask, ask John, I'm gonna ask John what he's very, yeah, what he's very about. optimistic about. Is that going to be hard for you? No, it'll no. be easier. It's harder for me yeah. to be pessimistic. Than I'll start with the optimistic. Okay. Yeah. I am looking forward to interacting with the sustenance algorithm in a post-scarcity world. <laughs> I'm looking forward to, to appealing to the machine that will give me my pellets and figuring out a way to get a leg up on it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for, for me, it's, it's I think that a lot of traditional media companies are essentially wholesalers of content. So, you know, it's like they make a box of cereal and they'll sell it at Walmart or at the corner bodega or at Whole Foods. They don't really care. They get paid mm. wherever they sell it. It's the same as a TV show. We'll sell it to Netflix. We'll sell it to, you know, overseas. We'll sell it here. We'll sell it there. And they essentially have no real connection with their audience. They're making things. They're making things and then selling them to the highest bidder. And sometimes it's literally an auction. And and the Internet lets you connect and the people who make things connect with people. And mm -hmm. and like I love the feedback. Like I, I think that you're writing. John's writing is better because of people writing back to him on Twitter and engaging him. And I think that the content we make at BuzzFeed is better because people are are holding us accountable and in some cases or, or lean, helping us know we can lean into certain things that we mm -hmm. like that are, that are really connecting. And the idea that BuzzFeed would become a wholesaler of content where essentially we're making content and then just selling it to all these different platforms. And mm -hmm. even if it's a lucrative business, that's the thing that I worry about and think a lot about. How do you avoid, how do you avoid that? And the main thing is you need to be able to have, you need to be able to to explain the value to these platforms of giving data back to the people who are making content. And and then you need to have a culture that is has is somewhat critical of the data and tries to interpret it and not just treat it in the most literal sense, but says, this is a signal among other signals, among our creativity and our editorial judgment and all these other things. And so becoming a wholesaler is the thing where, where that I'm I I don't ever want to do. I want to to you know the the retailer is like maybe the cereal should be on a different shelf. <laughs> maybe people want to eat avocado toast instead of cereal for breakfast. Like you know let's change the products we have. Let's make different products. You know like th that is to me a lot more exciting and allows us to have more impact doing news and creating entertainment. Mm -hmm. And so I think the the platforms I hope understand that it's in their interest as well to to allow the people making content for their platforms to to connect with the audience. All right. Well, would you rather kiss, cuddle, <laughs> or 
violently execute uh, bronies, furries, or uh, the anonymous collective? Oh. <laughs> I mean, I'd like to cuddle with anonymous, obviously. Okay. Yeah, makes sense. As a member of all three groups, uh-huh. <laughs> I have to recuse myself from this. Yeah, I was sort of wondering why you had the V for Vendetta mask and the fursuit on, um, but now that makes sense. John and Jonah, thank you so much for coming in. Uh, this was really fun for us, um, and I'm sure a delight for everyone listening who loves thinking about content. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Katie and Ryan, and I'm very sorry about what we did to your podcast. <laughs> Our apologies. Um, well, we'd love to have you back anytime. All right. See you around yeah, the office. Yeah, please come back. <laughs> Bye. Bye, guys. Ryan. This was a real treat. I I enjoy talking with you about content. I enjoyed talking with our wonderful guests. I just love content. What do you, what do you feel? Do you love content? I love making content. I love sharing the content that I made on digital platforms with other millennials, and I love watching it trend. And I think those are my favorite things of all. Oh, and memes. I love memes. Speaking of trending millennials, I also want to thank Eleanor Kagan, Jenna Weiss Berman, and Julia Furlan for just being the trending millennials that they are and oh. helping this podcast get made. And also, of course. Uh, trending millennial in spirit, if not in technical age range. Paul Ress, our wonderful engineer. Love you, Paul. Should I do a different voice just to... <laughs> Hi. Like that, and then it's like really clear? <laughs>